Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The north of the country is sensible, hardworking, thrifty. The south is careless, lazy, corrupt. Now, which country is it? It could be anywhere. Wherever you look, there's a north-south divide, a mutual mistrust that's somehow just human nature. And he came, he saw, he conquered. Pretty much the story of Julius Caesar wherever he went. He also wrote of his conquests with a little exaggeration. Our correspondent retraces Caesar's steps and sorts the facts from the fanciful. First up, though. In the years after the Second World War, a lot of Americans, those with the means to do so, left the noisy, cramped confines of the big city for a gentler pace of life. An exodus of residents from the central city to surrounding towns was beginning. Today, Long Island is America's new major market with the highest spendable income per household in the nation. The idea of moving out to the suburbs really took hold. Now, a new wave of migration is happening out of large urban centers, and it's not just because of the pandemic. Some analysts and observers say they haven't seen anything like this in decades. They're comparing the shift of populations to the suburbanization of the 1950s. Alexander Sewage Bass is our senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society. Cost and COVID-19 aren't the only considerations. Remote work is also playing a role. One analyst who I spoke to predicted that somewhere between 14 million and 23 million Americans, which is between 9 and 13 percent of today's workforce, may relocate due to remote work. And then you see cities with an uptick in crime, homelessness, and business closures due to COVID-19 at the same time that they're experimenting with criminal justice reform policies and proposing tax increases. So more people than ever are willing to rethink their location. So people are moving out of cities, but where are they moving into? So you see two broad trends, both of which were existing before COVID-19, but are especially strong now. One trend is that people are leaving large, dense, expensive urban cores for smaller, less dense cities and suburbs. And then the second trend is people and companies moving to warm, low-tax states in the South and Southwest. At The Economist, we did an analysis of data from the U.S. Postal Service, and we found that the three zip codes with the most changes of addresses for new arrivals were in suburbs and exurbs outside of Houston and Austin and Texas and Jacksonville, Florida. It's because property is cheaper, but they're still within driving distance of a city. And you said in a sense that this is a trend that was already underway, but it's been much magnified. I mean, how magnified? So there's really excellent research done by Stefan Whitaker at the Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank. He estimates that there was a net out migration in the second quarter of 2021, averaging 54,000 people per month. That's more than double pre-pandemic figures. New York and San Francisco saw the largest increases in the share of people leaving. Uh, it's true that in recent months, young people have started returning, but 
older and middle-aged people are continuing to flock to the suburbs to purchase homes. In aggregate, the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland estimates that from the start of the pandemic in March 2020 um, to March 2021, around 600,000 people moved from large, high-cost metro areas to mid-sized cities, and more than 740,000 moved to rural areas, small towns, and cities with populations below 500,000. That's about 13.5% increase from pre-pandemic levels. So is there a hope that movement into those perhaps less well-off suburban areas would, would lead to regeneration there? In general, that hasn't happened to the extent that some were hoping. The places that have been winning people um, are the places that were already winning people before the pandemic started. So the winners are, are just winning more. And what about the people in those places? Do they view themselves as winners here with, with this massive influx? There's some ambivalence from people in the places that are booming about what this will do to their communities and the cost of living. We've seen home prices rise so dramatically in some places. For example, in Austin, Texas, which saw the second highest rise in home values over the last year, they're up over 40%. Uh, people are getting priced out. And so people who have been living in places for a very long time are unable to move um, or are choosing to cash out, um, but then don't have anywhere else to go nearby. And there's, a, I think, a big question about as housing becomes less accessible to people, uh, what stake do people have in the system? I think that's going to be a big theme in the years ahead. Well, what about the other side of this equation? What about the, the cities where people are just spilling out? So it depends very much on the city. And I think the success of mega cities will depend on their governance and how well they provide services to the people who are paying higher taxes to live there. Um, so to the extent that cities are able to grapple with crime and homelessness successfully, I think that people will consider staying or potentially moving back to them. And we have seen some people who left cities like New York City during the pandemic come back. And if this trend you describe carries on, surely there will be political implications because there's all these voters moving. Absolutely. So one way to think about this is that there is a war for people and some states are losing that war and some states are winning the war. The states that are winning are Texas, Florida, Colorado, Montana, Oregon, North Carolina. They all gained population and therefore congressional seats over the last decade, while seven states, including New York and California lawsuits. That affects their political representation in Washington. It affects federal funding. Um, and so it has potentially large implications, especially if some of these trends continue into the decade ahead. So real changes in the, in the economic map of the country, the political maps, as you say, but I, I wonder also about the, the demographic suburbs, many of them just, well, basically white picket fences and white people inside. How, how does that picture look now? Yes, absolutely. That's certainly the stereotype of suburbs, but they are changing pretty dramatically in America and becoming much more ethnically diverse. About 86% of the population of major metro areas live in suburbs or exurbs today. That's sure, it's 90% white, but it's also 83% of Latinos, 81% of Asians, and 76% of African Americans. And Latinos in particular have been relocating to suburbs at much higher rates in the past two decades. Since 2000, their number has risen by more than 50%, compared with a 20% rise for African Americans and Asians and just 1.3% for whites. 
The, the other point I would make, in addition to suburbs becoming much more diverse, is that as people move, uh, we're more likely to see people with diverse opinions and backgrounds uh, coming into contact with one another. And I think that uh, is potentially of great benefit to a country that feels extremely politically divided. Thanks very much for joining us, Alexandra. Thank you, Jason. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In nearly a quarter century as a foreign reporter living and working in four continents, one quirk of human nature has kept cropping up. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. People, it turns out, love to judge or to mock or to distrust those who live either above or below them on a map. It's a north-south divide, and I have seen it all over the world. I have a theory that every foreign correspondent's first posting should be Belgium. Because you see in that tiny kingdom an enormous number of global forces play out, including a severe north-south antipathy. Now, in theory, Belgium's divisions are purely linguistic. It's a country of 11.5 million people, and you have a Dutch-speaking north, so you have famous Flemish folk songs like Gorky by Luc de Vos. And you have a French-speaking south, so think of famous artists like Stromae and his song Ta Fête. But it's much more than just a language barrier. It is clearly understood as a badge of tribal belonging. And people will tell you that the linguistic frontier is actually the border between the Germanic and the Latin worlds. It's amazingly common for people to get into really harsh stereotypes about the other half of Belgium. Northerners, uh, the Flemish, they're called hardworking, they're dour, they're thrifty, they're kind of cabbage-growing farmers, early to bed, mean with money. The Southerners, you get all the kind of classic Southern stereotypes that they are wily, that they're lazy, that they're corrupt, but they live a good life. And one of the extraordinary things as an outsider is that Belgium is so very small. The distance from top to bottom of Belgium is 200 and something kilometers. The weather is the same gray skies everywhere. And yet, if you hear the nationalists on each side of that language barrier talk, it's as if a tiny Prussia has been forced to share a border with Sicily. I was based in Brussels when the Euro crisis began in 2009. And it amazingly quickly it became clear that this wasn't just a technical crisis about things like bailout funds and fiscal discipline. It was a gigantic display of north-south distrust. The current situation is uh, not the crisis, uh, not the crisis of the euro, but uh, it is uh, yes, uh, a very rocky ride. Uh. <laughs> And that really the problem with the single currency was that there was an unanswered question. Did North and South Europeans like each other enough 
to share a currency. And all of these regional stereotypes immediately came into play. So as a journalist, you'd be covering these very technical late night summits. Finance ministers or heads of governments rushed in and tried to agree the latest bailout, the latest uh, sort of deficit mechanism. But you'd also hear people talking about how the problem was the club med countries. You can water ski, play tennis. In Europe's south, you'd have German tabloids uh, talking about tax-dodging layabouts in Greece allowed to retire at 55. And it is true that Europe does have regional differences. There are bits that score better on corruption surveys. There are bits that score better in terms of GDP per capita. And clearly, southern Europe does have problems with organised crime, as does the former Eastern Bloc. But what's amazing is that you notice that people will be explaining their regional differences in north-south terms, but that these north-south differences keep resetting at individual borders. I first noticed this in Brussels. In Belgium, it is absolutely taken for granted that the north of Belgium is Germanic, that door unfriendly but hard-working place, and that the south of Belgium is kind of the Mediterranean. And yet, once you go further south than Belgium, you cross the border into northern France and you're in the north again, because the north of France, a lot of it is big, fairly bleak, open skies, big kind of cabbage fields. And you have to keep heading further south until you get to Provence, where life is easy. But if you start looking on a map, you realise that Barcelona, cold door northern Spanish commercial capital, is actually further south than Marseille and has the same weather as Marseille, which is this kind of famously Mediterranean southern city. It turns out that north-south cliches completely reverse on the far side of the equator. So when you're based in Sydney, where I was, if you wanted to go to a sort of genteel city with a mild climate and meet sort of starched establishment types, you needed to head south to places like Melbourne or Adelaide. And yet, if I wanted to kind of find rough, tough populist politicians there was a famous one, Pauline Hansen, who was making a run in the late 90s when I was there. Her sort of heartland was the sweltering tropical north of Queensland. So you drive north and it would get more and more sort of hot and baking. And she would be saying these ferocious things about immigration and Asians taking over Australia, making it a foreign country. I and most Australians want our immigration policy, policy radically reviewed and that of multiculturalism abolished. I believe we are in danger of being swamped by Asians between 1980... I think it's important to note that this idea that the sort of hot, steamy places are lazy and corrupt, there are some nasty racial prejudices that lurk in there. Throughout the whole kind of colonial period, Northwestern Europeans were very fond of explaining why their temperate climate made them industrious. That was very often being used to justify that Northwest Europe seemed to be colonizing vast chunks of Asia or Africa without any trouble. So thanks to COVID, writing a piece about North-South regional differences, I was going to have to do that from China, where I currently am and have not left for two years. China is, it has to be said, a good place to write a piece about stereotypes because Chinese people love a good stereotype. But I was able to go right down to the border of China and Vietnam to Dongxing. It's a coastal town that used to live on tourism across the border from Vietnam. Uh, but now, since COVID broke out, when you go down to that border bridge, it's not tourists coming across. You hear these kind of recorded messages about COVID controls and pandemic precautions. It's about 2,500 kilometers south of Beijing. It's hot. The gap with Vietnam is just a kind of muddy little river. 
I spent a happy evening in Dongxing talking to a local shopkeeper, Yao Shang. He sells dresses, hats and shoes he gets from Vietnam and China. And uh, I started asking him about whether he can see differences between northerners and southerners, because a bit like Florida attracting snowbirds from the sort of frigid north of America, Dongxing, with its kind of warm climate all year round, gets quite a lot of northern tourists and even retirees from kind of uh, snowy bits of China who come down and live in Dongxing, which is on in the province of Guangxi. Mr. Yao explained that he can spot northern Chinese because they are taller and paler because they grow up eating wheat noodles, not like Guangxi people. He's not utterly enamoured of his northern customers and neighbours. He says that northerners love to bargain so much that he doesn't make any money. Southerners are more generous. You know, they bargain a bit, but they'll happily pay up. I asked him if he'd been to the north. He said he'd been to Beijing once, but the cold, blustery wind made him want to leave early. There's an interesting phenomenon in Dongxing that the very first shops that you come to just after the border bridge, they specialise in Vietnamese coffee and in chopping boards for cutting up meat made from Vietnamese teak. I spoke for a long time to a shopkeeper who would only give me a surname, Dung. And he had very strong views on northerners and southerners. So northern Chinese, he told me that they're better suited to officialdom than to business. That was not a compliment. And he thinks that Southerners are smarter, more straightforward. He said that Southern women are more beautiful than Northern women. And then he said that when he travelled in Vietnam as a businessman, he thought that Southern Vietnamese food was better than Northern and that Southern Vietnamese women are prettier than Northern. So he was basically a Southern chauvinist. But here's the thing, just like being in Belgium with these kind of very, very dramatic cultural differences in a very small space, Mr. Dung, this kind of incredible southern chauvinist is right across a very narrow river from a bit of Vietnam which is identified as completely northern and so you see how these things are incredibly regional and incredibly local and that's a bit of a challenge if you are a foreign correspondent because we're trying to make these kind of broad cross-cutting comparisons between continents big trends but when you go actually start talking to people on the ground you realize that people are hardwired to make very very local domestic relative judgments about people they know next to them, their neighbours, their cousins, and that they're very often going to be judging their own fortunes in comparison with people close by them. What it reminds you is that the world is not a machine, you can't explain its workings with the laws of physics. It is made of people. Covering the world as a foreign correspondent is basically about listening to people, trying to understand them as they see the world, and it's often cacophonous, like a kind of family argument, more than a kind of neat piece of geopolitical analysis. And that is the job of the foreign correspondent at any latitude. France has been a land of inspiration for history's great writers. From F. Scott Fitzgerald, France has the only two things toward which we drift as we grow older, intelligence and manners. To Friedrich Nietzsche, as an artist, a man has no home in Europe save in Paris. To Gertrude Stein, there are the two sides to a Frenchman, logic and fashion. And that is the reason why French people are peaceful and exciting, logic and fashion. And from Hemingway to Orwell and Joyce to Turgenev, But in terms of influence, one writer stands above them all. Julius Caesar spent nine years in France, back when it was part of a region the Romans called Gaul. 
Along the way, he did a lot of conquering, quite a bit of brutal killing, and some considered writing. He documented the Gallic Wars in a series of essays that he sent back to the Roman Senate, so the news of his exploits could be spread at home. Caesar's writings on the Gallic Wars are written really brilliantly, and it's full of complete hogwash. He claims at one point that uh, he killed 400,000 Germanic tribes people and lost no Roman legionaries whatsoever in one battle. He wasn't trying to write objective history. His aim was to portray himself as a great and brave leader. With those writings in hand, The Economist's foreign editor, Robert Guest, traveled to France to retrace Caesar's steps, and in particular to visit the site of one of Caesar's rare moments of weakness. So I went to the scene of the Battle of Gagovia, which was in 52 BC. I've climbed up the mountain from near where Julius Caesar had his small camp, up one of the routes that the legionaries must have taken to the top of the hill, the fortress that uh, Vercingetorix was uh, defending at Gagovia. And I have to say, it was exhausting, even though no one was shooting arrows at me. His opponent was a young chief who'd managed to unite several Gaulish tribes against the Romans. His name was Vercingetorix. Many years ago, uh, this place was really the symbol, symbol of, uh, of uh, this young chief, uh, Vercingetorix, who was... Uh, I made it to the, the Museum of Gergovia, which opened in 2019 on the site, just over the, the old battlements. And I spoke to the head of the museum, Frédéric Noncel. He described how generations of archaeologists had looked for evidence to support the account that we have in Caesar's book. We more and more now we know and we hope that with all the archaeological research we, we can discover new artefacts and new uh, proof of the truth history. A lot of the evidence corroborates Caesar's account. So that there was a ditch that he dug connecting the two Roman camps. And it's, it's just as Caesar described. Excavations in the 1990s found part of it. And in cross-section, you can see the older soil is paler and the soil that filled it in over subsequent centuries forms a, a dark triangle. And they found artifacts cracked helmets, short stabbing swords, and the huge siege arrows fired from a scorpion, which is a sort of giant Roman siege crossbow. But there's an awful lot extra in Caesar's account that's not corroborated. Like what? In his own account of the battle, Caesar is an ingenious tactician. He has his mule herders don helmets and pretend to be cavalry to distract the Gauls' attention. He moves soldiers quietly through his ditch to surprise them. And then he says he loses largely because of bad luck. Some of his men, he says, failed to hear a trumpet ordering them to fall back at a crucial moment. Others mistook their allies from another Gaulish tribe for for Vercingetorix's men. This stuff is impossible to disprove. What we can say is that the descriptions he gives of how many men he lost, I mean, he says he lost just 700 legionaries uh, and 46 centurions, You know, he fielded somewhere between 20,000 and 45,000 men, and he suffered a rout. So this seems very unlikely to be true. Okay, so Caesar boasts about the victories and and sweeps the failures under the carpet a bit, but the the, the evidence where there is any bears out a lot of what he's saying. So so what's the lesson then for you in in reading through Caesar's writings on, on these Gallic wars? I mean, we have to see this this document not just as a a historical document, although it is the most complete account that we have of this campaign, but also as a, as a manifesto. 
he was trying to persuade the people of Rome that he was the best man to run Rome. And it worked. He ended up being dictator for life. Um, and admittedly, his career was cut short when he was stabbed to death by senators who thought he was planning to make himself king. But nonetheless, his adopted heir became the first emperor, and he ended up being one of the most influential people in history. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Jason, thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.